Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mendy Yuri. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Our guest this evening is Rob Rowe. Rob has managed teams in North America, Europe and Asia Pacific. He has worked for large corporations, medium-sized companies and startups. Along the way, he has had many conversations with colleagues and the same questions keep coming up. Why am I always in meetings? Why can't we make decisions? Why do we have vertical silos? His search for an answer led him to undertaking a Master of Strategic Foresight which opened his eyes to new perspectives on how people, organisations and cultures work together. Combining this new learning with his corporate experience, Rob set out to implement a better way of working for an organisation. He is not doing this as an external consultant, nor as the internal organisational development person, but as a line manager, trying to implement what the external and internal people are telling us to do. There has been much learning along the way. Rob also has a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering and is a qualified fitter and turner. And recently, Rob launched his first book, which was co-authored with Peter Dalton. The book is called Giving Hope. Welcome to FuturePod, Rob. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, this is an intriguing story, one that starts with being a qualified fitter and turner, moves to Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering. Then there's a company called One Trust. There's factsfororganisations.com, The Signal Road, and then the new book. Can you tell us a little bit about that trajectory? How did you go from one of those to the other and end up here? Um, It started probably from high school, looking at do I go into university, looked at my eldest brother who was at university working part-time to fund himself and I thought no I, I want to do this an easier way so I actually got a cadetship with a large engineering firm and they put me through the apprenticeship and also the engineering degree which I did part-time the idea was they wanted people who knew the factory floor to be engineers uh, halfway through that I discovered I didn't want to be an engineer but I finished the course and then joined a little computer company called IBM and uh, that saw me move to the US and also manage teams in Asia Pacific, Europe. So great experience at the time. And then uh, went on to actually get poached to go back to North America and then came back to Australia, children getting older, so settled down. And at this stage, I wanted to, you know, all those experiences that you read out and all those questions and I was, I was going through that phase we all do where I was reading all these business books. Like I spent half my life on planes, so I had a great opportunity to read. So I was reading all these business books, but it wasn't giving me the answers. And I actually looked around and I discovered this course called Masters of Strategic Foresight. And I'd been reading up on scenario planning and systems thinking, and that was some of the readings. So I thought, this, hey, this is great. This is, this is a line. I'll go do that. And as I said to Richard Slaughter... I said, this course was nothing like I thought it would be and everything that I needed. 
And his response, by the way, was, yeah, I get that a lot, right? So <laughs> um, it was an awesome, awesome journey. From that, that's where FAQs for Orgs came from, Signal Road. But I then joined the startup world. So it was more trying to put in the things I learnt into practice and joined a company actually called Airwatch. So I was employee number one here in Australia, US startup. And globally that grew to close to 2,000 people. Got acquired for you know, a nice sum from by a large software company out of the US. Um, and so that was great. And then got approached by Peter Dalton, who was put on to me by Peter Hayward. And uh, three years later, we produced this book, uh, Giving Hope. And then the people who did Airwatch rang me up last year and said, hey, time to come back. So I've joined OneTrust, which is around privacy management, which is a whole interesting field in its in its own. And again, I was employee number one here in Australia, and we're building that out right now. Hmm. Wow. So being employee number one, does that mean that you have a degree of freedom to introduce your own practices and how things work right from the start? Absolutely, mm. right. And for a couple of reasons, the first one, Airwatch, the CEO and founder was in the US and was so busy. So we just got left alone. And what was interesting is we started here, we we're building up, adding new people. And a chap came along called uh, Michael Griffiths from Cornerstone Integral. And he, he'd read my paper, my research paper out of my master's degree. And he said, so, Rob, are you, you actually doing this? And I didn't answer him at the time, but the question hit me. And uh, I went back to the office and we're actually at a critical point And I went, I'm not doing it as much as I should be. So I, from that point on, that's when I really started using my master's thesis and integral and putting that into practice. And that's what we did. When we got taken over by a large US software company, they came in and took over and that all fell apart. Uh, time to start again. And the thing before I joined the company was I actually said, I want to be able to have the freedom to do what we're doing. And I've been given that, so it's great. Wow. Before the US company came and took you over again, were you able to see any results from what you were doing, what you were initiating in that organisation? Um, results and a lot of learning. Yeah. Um, we were in a very competitive market. It was a new market that we were doing with Airwatch. According to outside analysts, we grew market share here to 50% when globally we had nowhere near that. So I take that as a great result. Also, though, a great result then, but not always seen by the troops was, which I now get, I had someone call me actually this week and said, I miss working back in that environment. So the great result for me was how people work together, how the teams work together, and how they all grew. And another one which I love is we hired people that... Um, we were giving them a chance. They were coming off help desks. They were coming off di different sorts of environments and they've just blossomed. And that's a great result. It is a great result. So you, when you responded to me just then, you were speaking about the result from the company, the fiscal result or the, the hard result. But you're speaking now about some very important things about the people, the people in the organisation. Absolutely right. Mm. So the... The thing is that, and what business forget, you know, they talk, they all say, hey, people's our number one asset. Yeah. And then completely disregard it. Right. Right. 
And so where I was coming from was if you can support, grow the people, the fiscal result will come. And in growing that was not just looking at from our own internal people, but from our customers as well and making that whole connection. I remember we ran a user conference once up in Sydney. Uh, I made everyone who wanted to go up to Sydney and be part of that, they actually had to be part of a flash mob. And so we put on a flash mob for all of our customers. And that connection, yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. You can see it on YouTube, actually. But uh, And that was the whole company, the whole culture, the whole thing was, was so important. Wow. And so the customers saw that and thought, well, there's a company that I want to be associated with. And that was a boost to your results as well. Look, and it's actually in this whole privacy space now that we're talking, if you put the customer first, I mean, that's a cliche, right? But if you really do it, yeah. right, it's amazing what happens. And and this is about how we structured our work, how we operated, right? So we'd bring out a new release of the software and there'd always be problems. Well, the customers would ring up their tech people and say, what's going to happen? And our tech people would tell them because that's the relationship and they go, oh, great, thanks, and off they'd go, right? Or we had situations where customers would say, how come you always answer my, my tickets, my support requests? Well, I'm part of your dedicated technical team. Oh, that's awesome, right? So customers just, they felt the care. The people giving it felt they were part of delivering a great outcome. They weren't there to say, how many times do you jump up and down the one spot today? So... Were you able to demonstrate to this company that came back and took you over again? You could see what the benefits were, external and internal. Were you able to, you know, demonstrate that to them and were you, were you able to win them over? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, this is still part of my ongoing journey, mm. right? Mm. Is and, and we'll talk about this in, in as we go through this, I'm sure. But it's about how do you get people to open their minds, right? So... You know, I'm a fan of Otto Sharma's theory, you, where you've got to go through open mind, open heart, open will. And it's hard enough to get people to open mind, let alone anything else, right? And so what I actually did was share all of this stuff that I'd been doing, shared some of my work after I had left even. I went and went to the company in the US and the executive vice president, great guy, Went and had lunch with him in the cafeteria and shared everything we're doing. Um, I'm going to send a copy of the book over. But they get so stuck. I think you, you read about silo effects there. They get so stuck in this world that they can't get past it. Right. I'm still trying to work out how. And if anyone out there has any answers, please come and, you know, come and reach out. Maybe it'd be good to move into uh, a little bit more about what your practice involved and what you were trying to nurture in an organisation in general and what tools you were using that you found effective. You've got to do this in layers, right? So underneath all of this is I, I, I fell in love with Ken Wilber's integral model, integral theory, when I did my Master's of Strategic Foresight, right? Because for me, it is a map. And it allowed me to start putting all the pieces of the business books and the academic research that I was reading, right, uh, into this map. And it layered out, we talked about, you know, the people aspect as well as the, the, the results. So it actually helped me connect those things. 
if you have the right culture and the right thinking and the right behavior and the right processes, the results will come, right? So underpinning a lot of this stuff is I just think of that structure. But the other thing that came out of that and, and the research um, was vertical development of people. So a great learning of mine when, when we're doing this was you can't take 20-year-olds I'm sorry for all the 20-year-olds out there, but you can't take 20-year-olds and say, just go do it. Hey, we just, this, you know, go work it out and go do it. They actually need a lot more structure in that space, right? You know, some are great, but others got lost into that. And I, and I did not give them the structure. And so what I found was I had to do more than just say, just go do it. And we had to provide more structure around that. So I'm not sitting there and talking about Wilbur's model or you know, vertical development and whether it's Susan Cook Reuter or, you know, um, Bill Torbear or anything like that, just, no, you can't do that, right? So you've got to turn that into, well, how does this work, right? Now, actually, in my team meeting every week, I'd actually put Wilbur's model up and I had three circles on this model and the smallest circle in the middle was red, green and then blue. Yeah, stealing a little bit from Don Beck, Chris Cowan's Spiral Dynamics. But what I said was, hey, we're growing so fast. And the mar and it's highly competitive and it's all about trying to get as much market share as we can. If we don't watch ourselves, we're going to shrink back into this red circle where it's all about me. And for those out there who can recognize levels of consciousness and all that sort of stuff, right? What we've got to do, hopefully, is get out to green right where it's about you and me and how do we work together and ultimately we want to get to we and i'd put that up there and what was interesting is some of the team you know they they printed off that one slide and had it on their at their cubicle right and when i after i left and everything got knocked down again people would say we're moving into that red circle rob we're moving into that red circle right and because they got sliced and diced up into their silos and all that sort of stuff as well. So underpinning it was Wilbur, putting together all the different frameworks that I'd read about, putting into context that, but how do you apply it? Mm. And then the other tool I use over and over again, I used with the case studies in the book and, and all sorts of stuff is, I love experiential exercises. So I go back to Sharma with, you know, how do you how do you create that crack going from open open mind open heart open will was get people to experience it and one was a prisoner's dilemma game which i pinched from a negotiation course i did many years ago another one is uh, a lean thinking exercise out of toyota production system where we make paper airplanes and people actually physically see this appear it emerges in front of them and so it's not me downloading on them, here's the world and here's how it should be, is them doing it and experiencing it. And then what I do is I, I hopefully am able to draw out of that the lessons that we're learning through that. A very simple one, which I actually pinched from when I was doing some stuff with Mercer years ago, I do a guest lecture at RMIT once a semester. It's actually in an IT course, user-centric design, but it's I'm not an expert on that. But the first thing I do with all the students is I get every second one to stand up. And I say, you're the bosses. Because of your good looks, you've been made managers, bosses, whatever, and they all laugh and think this is great, right? And then I say, right, you've got a minute 
to get the person sitting to your left to stand up. And I have a countdown for that and I say, right, go. And they all start, you know, a whole range of tactics to get that up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, at the yeah. end of it, I actually have an online survey and say what tactics were used, you know, raise their voice, they bribed you, they physical force, da 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 da. The last one is shared purpose. And so we go through that and we have a discussion. The first thing I say to them is, who had control? And of course, it's not the bosses. It's the people sitting down. Yeah. And a couple will say shared purpose, and I ask them who said that, and we talk about that, right? Because having a mission, having a purpose is so important. And if they actually shared a purpose and they agreed on that, they'd all stand up, right? So it's the, those sort of tools which I like to use, which are based on experiential learning, which is then the underpinning of what's guiding this, if that all makes sense. Really interesting. So a question arises for me, how come... You said people have to be ready, I think, to change. You were not able to convince the takeover company of this. Was that just because you were in a position with your own staff to be able to do these exercises with them and you didn't have the same opportunities to convince the others? So if you were to get the latest English pound, 20 pound note out, right? Yep. So go get one if you were to get it out, right? On the back of it or the front, whichever side of it is, is a quote from Adam Smith. And, and the quote from Adam Smith is about the pin factory and the division of labor. This is slicing up, making a pin into the division of labor, right? This is from the 1800s. It's on the 20-pound note, the new 20-pound note. That's how entrenched our thinking is around how we operate. And you've got to take people on this journey... So they are ready and they will start questioning it. And it's uh, the strategist person, Gary Hamill, talked about this once, that the way you've got successful in your career up to the top levels and, and the CEOs is in this world. And suddenly someone comes along and says, well, what you're doing is wrong. But they've never, never learned anything else for the rest of their, you know, for their entire life. So you're fighting, you know, Dr. Joe Boris would be pleased to hear me say this. We're fighting big history here, right? Um, where, where it's um, such entrenched thinking that, and, and I think the quote underneath it, and the productivity gains that come from this, right? There's so many, so much work being done now that disproves that, yet they're still perpetuating that myth out there, right? What I find is that when I talk to the up-and-coming middle management layers, when I talk to the frontline troops, they get it. They absolutely get it. Not everyone, but they get. And they go, holy moly, Rob, can you just go and talk to the bosses, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's almost like that you get to, um, when you get up to that level, you don't want to change because that's what's made you successful. Daniel Petrie, an Australian here who's written about, you know, lonely role of CEOs and being on boards and stuff like that. He said, you know, people get to these levels and they go, oh, what got me here was fighting tooth and nail for my success. But I actually want my senior executives to love each other and work together. But that's not how I got here. So how do I make that change? Right. It's, it's a huge thing. I think... Mm. For me, where I'm at right now is either the, 
the boards have got to decide this and support a CEO coming up into it? Or how do we educate the upcoming masses that that's what they demand? There's a front cover of The New Yorker when the 2018 new Congress people came in, right? And there's a great picture of the, the, you know, the white pale stale males in there in black and white. And then the doors opening and here's this colorful group coming out of Alexandria, Ocasio, Cortez, um, and, and all these sorts of people coming in. And they're the people that's going to help us change it. So, Rob, where are our leaders of the future going to come from, given what you've just been speaking about? I mentioned Gary Hamill before, and he describes Silicon Valley as a refugee camp for people out of large corporations. And he sort of said, you could imagine if you had a CEO of Silicon Valley, it would actually squash all, all the entrepreneurship, all the innovation coming out of it. People don't always know what they want, but they know what they don't want. And what we're seeing right now is this sort of reaction which is saying, well, I don't know whether I want that anymore. Mm. Monster.com, which is like Seek here, big uh, recruitment site in the US, they had a fantastic ad, which was these kids. And it was, when I grow up, I want to be a brown nose. When I, wanna grow, when I grow up, I want to suck up to upper management kind of stuff. And I was just really highlighting that. So the next generation coming through, we've got to continue to educate them. There is a different way. There is, a, I think, my view is a better way, which can lead to job satisfaction and all those sorts of things. And, and they, they will question, why are we doing this? And so, you know, I think that's where our future leaders will come from. But it'll be two steps forward, three steps back and all that sort of stuff along the way. That's why I said to the board, if the board's looking for someone to be that gung-ho, I know everything usually white male, to, to be the next CEO, then great. Don't go work there, right? Mm, but yeah. if, if as, as some of the board becomes more understanding of this sort of practice, you know, maybe we'd need a different leader, right? So hopefully we're coming up through that. Doing one of the case studies for the book, I ran the paper plane exercise and we had fantastic results. And... I actually got rung up by the CEO the next day and they said, you've got to come back because you've actually opened a lot of wounds. Mm, so, wow. you know, you've got to think about your ethics and all that sort of stuff as you do this, right? And I ended up talking to this one person who said, I just sat there and, because these were for not-for-profits. These are doing fantastic work in the world. And they said, I could just see we'll never get to what you've shown us we could be doing. And I'm looking at these people I'm trying to help. And there happened to be folders on her desk. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just went home so kind of despondent that night. So you've got to be mm-hmm. careful how you do all this. But they're the people who are going to help drive it forward. They're going to say, no, we don't want to be like this. Mm-hmm. right? But they haven't been shown a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I hope in the book, I've been able to take the big ideas, the big frameworks, the big academic, and turn it into something more tangible. Um, it was a struggle, but that's, I hope that's what we've achieved to a certain extent. And, you know, when I talk to these younger generations coming up, they get it. And so that's where our leaders are going to come from. Rob, just for the benefit of our listeners, I wonder if you can just explain briefly about the paper plane exercise. 
So the paper plane exercise comes out of lean thinking, which comes out of Toyota. Lean thinking has spawned this whole agile movement as well. The idea here is that we got to build paper aeroplanes. And what I do is, just like Adam Smith and the Division of Labor, um, you have, there's one group, they got to do fuselage folds, and another group's got to do the first wing and then the second wing and the nose. And, and we run this exercise three times, six minutes each time. And the first two times I've got the nose fold far away from the wing fold far away. So I'm, we're in our silos, we're in our functional groups. And I have a cross-company coordinator who's got to run between them all, right? Uh, and we do it in batches. And, and then the second time, we only change we make is smaller batches. And the third time, we go down to a single plane. And I say to the group, the other rule is you can make any change you like. Go. Because all the way through this is saying, we're too far apart. We're too far apart. We're too far apart. We need to work together. And I say, right, go. And what's amazing is they all start coming together and they all start um, moving their tables and sitting closer together. They actually all sack the managers I have in this exercise. They sack the cross-company coordinator and they all start working together. And the last time that human element comes out, they're smiling. They're happier. You know, in one of the exercises that I did with one of the case studies, there was a cry from the table. Who needs managers, right? Because they're all working together. We create feedback loops, all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. We then debrief, right. right? And the results go up. Like you wouldn't, the financial results go up. The quality goes up over the three. And as a facilitator, I can't control that, right? It just emerges. Yeah. We then debrief. And I said, you know, you just made a whole lot of changes. You just rearranged how you worked, how you operated, you sacked managers, you did all that sort of stuff. When you go back to your desks, can you make those same changes? And there's usually silence. Mm -hmm. Again, you've got to be careful as a facilitator taking people on the journey, but they go, no. Yeah. Well, what's stopping you? And the thing I've found in my roles as being a change manager um, is just giving people permission. You know, it's amazing. Just give them permission. What's stopping you? And, and that's got to come from the CEO and it's got to come from the board down. But even then, there's a lot of learnt lessons of, no, we, we can't do that. We can't step out of our lane, all that sort of stuff. But that's the paper plane exercise. And it's one of those experiential ones where they see the results. They actually get up, make change. Mm. And I haven't directed them at all. And then, But then you, in the debrief, you say, you make the observation and they go, holy moly. Rob, the next question we like to ask our guests is a slightly more personal question. It's about what you're seeing yourself and your own thoughts and views about the future. What are you seeing? And you can use whatever time frame you wish. 30 years might be sort of appropriate. So in a certain aspect, I see a very negative future. But underneath that, I, I do have hope. And what I say about that is I think that we, we're going to have to go through a lot of lessons before we come out the other end. We're going to have to see, so I'm, in, I'm talking about in the business world and the for-profit world, but we're going to have to see 
the makeup of boards change. We're going to have to see different CEOs come in. We're going to have to see all that sort of movement. And we're going to see, have to see safety in numbers. That is, you know, for a board to select someone that doesn't fit that normal mould, that's a brave decision for them. So we're going to have to start seeing examples of that happening. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, you know, they're going to bring down a budget which is about the wellness of the, com of the country. I, that is awesome, right? And she is leading the way, right? And, you know, she says, well, what? And I've often questioned this. Why does GDP have to grow? Why? Mm. Isn't it about how good the, our people are and their quality of life and all that sort of stuff? And, you know, the, the fact that the life expectancy in the US has either plateaued or gone down or something like that, well, how, how bad's that? So where do I see the world going? I see a lot of hard lessons have to be learnt along the way. I mentioned uh, the new crop of Congress people coming in in the US. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to get picked on, right? They're going to say outrageous things because they didn't follow that norm that they were supposed to follow. But that's okay from my point of view because we need that as we go through. So where's the world going to go? I picked that... I'm going to live to 130, but I don't think the world I would like to see is going to be there when I grow when I get to 130, right? So um, another long story why I picked that. But the the thing is that you know if we can just move the ball forward, if we can just help and educate and stuff like that, there's some fantastic people out there that are going to take this and are going to question it and move forward. So I, I am hopeful that we will get there. But I do think we're going to go through a lot of pain before we do come out the other side. And we're seeing that in the world right now. Mm. But that's, you know, I listened to Sahal's podcast and he talked about the fact that as futurists, we do look longer term and we can see coming out the other side. We don't get caught up in this short term worry about, oh, that's, you know, the wrong person got elected or whatever else happened right now. A part of that is becoming dissatisfied with where we are, so we will grow and move from that. Uh, Don Beck talked about you got to go through the dip, you got to go through the delta phase, you got to go through that before you can come out the other side. And I think we're going to have to go through that. That's what I see. But I do have hope that there will be resilience there. There will be, you know, uh, some innovation and some some fresh thinking, and we'll come out the other end. We'll have to. We, we will just have to. You know, Buckminster Fuller said, you know, we're Spaceship Earth. And Earth actually doesn't need us. We need it. Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. we want to keep going, then we're going to have to sort these things out. Rob, the next question that we ask people is a, a really around about futures and foresight and that discipline. And a lot of people don't know what it is. How do you describe that field? So I don't describe myself as a futurist or a foresight practitioner, so I don't often get that question, right? But when, when I do get that question or whatever, you know, people say, so where's your crystal ball and where's all that sort of stuff? And I leverage a lot of what I was taught in the Masters of Strategic Foresight, which is futures has an S on the end, right? Mm. So let's understand that for a start. 
and understand that what we're doing here is saying what is what is the range of futures so one of the things i talk one of the things i really like is getting people thinking about possible futures so this is dr joe forrest's future cones you know what's projected what's probable what's possible what's impossible which then shows you where you restricted your thinking and so when they start understanding it is futures with an s and it isn't like predicting something then they're able to see well where do we want to be mm-hmm. and then what yes. action do we need to take now to get us there one of the things i want to do i'm still too nervous to try this is you know as a facilitator is asking people you know your birth date well what's your death date when are you going to die? And the idea of this is to get them to think out into that future. And then you say, and what's your legacy? What's written on your tombstone? What's, what were you known for? So suddenly they're thinking much broader time horizon. They're thinking about what they're doing, not about what are the material things I collected, because you're going to leave them behind. And what was I known for? Did I move the ball forward? So, you know... Pity the poor person who asks me what's foresight about because I give them a big long answer like that, right? <laughs> so I want to get them to think about that um, and that future thing. And that's why I, I want to try this thing out around death date, but I don't want to upset people, you know, yes. <laughs> as well. Rob, for the last question we like to just explore an area which our guests want to say more about. In your case, I'd really love to hear more about your book and what that means to you in your whole career, Giving Hope, wonderful title. Could you tell us about it? Thanks for the opportunity. Um, So Giving Hope, uh, we came up with that title very early on because what we're trying to write to was, and this is for the not-for-profit sector, but but my part was organisations within that. And my co-author, Peter Dalton, you know, he said, like, I've got the answer. You know, he's from the fundraising side. I got the answer. Just put him on the executive and everything will be sweet. And I said, you're sure about that? Because all they'll do is be another silo in, in the whole organization. And so we talked about what, we, what are we trying to do here? So giving hope came from when donors give to organizations, they're giving hope. They're giving hope that they're going to help a better world. When a not-for-profit helps a beneficiary, they're giving hope. They're giving hope to the the people that are going to benefit from their services and and stuff they're doing. And we wrote the book trying to give hope to the actual people in the organisation that there is a better way to do things and we can you can achieve so much more with what you've got, etc. I mean. Working in a not-for-profit's tough. It's really, really hard. It's really rewarding, but it's really hard. So that's where the title came from. So those three reasons for giving hope is what we talked about. For me, we talked about it earlier where especially people in senior, senior roles inside organisations have always lived this way and we've got such entrenched thinking in how we should operate. And if you go read all the business books, no one actually... No one actually tells you how to change. Hmm. They say, hey, we must, you know, Simon Sinek, start with why, you know, Jim Collins, good to great, you got to have a mission. We all say these things, but no one tells you how. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do with this book 
and we use three case studies. So we use Oxfam, Marta Foundation and Plan International. And they were so generous with their time, uh, which was awesome. Thanks very much. What we wanted to do was not just say, hey, you got to have a mission. Well, they had a mission. Got to have a purpose. They had a purpose, right? We wanted to help them. How do you actually implement this? How do you do the how? You know, I pick on Simon Sinek a little bit in the book where I talk about start with why. And he talks about what. And there's a how in the middle. And he never really, there's a whole chapter on how, but he never really gives you a reason. So what we wanted to do and what I hopefully contributed to it is the lessons I had learned from implementing this stuff. Um, I wanted to turn that into tangible type approaches that any organization, whether you're for-profit, not-for-profit, can do. The last chapter is actually putting into practice what we preach. Mm. And so the last chapter was, well, okay, smarty pants, you've done all this research, these interviews, these stuff with the organization, what should they do? And it was actually quite interesting on our own personal journey as we wrote this book. It took three years to go through this was, well, we needed to be able to explain what we were doing. So we came up with some frameworks to do that. So one was the mission to market map. It's not a go to market map, not I've got products. Now, how do I go to market? I've got a mission. How do I take that to market? And so the idea around that was how do we structure that? How do you do that? came up with the four M's. The four M's are mission, measurements, manifestations, and management model. And so it was about how do we start aligning everything this way? And I think one of the key learnings was the reason we're so entrenched in how we do things is because we have functions, sales, marketing, delivery, manufacturing, etc., etc., And that then turns into how we operate. And one of the key learnings is, now you don't need to operate that way. You need functions for skills. But you actually got to bring those skills together to deliver an outcome. And that's where Mission to Market and the 4Ms and these sorts of models come in. That was the paper plane exercise. I've got someone doing nose folds. I've got something like that. I forgot to mention before we start any of those, the paper plane building, I get them to write down their purpose. And they say, we want to, you know, one group came up, we want to be the best nosologists in the world, <laughs> right? But it's about their function. When they get to that last table where they put it all together themselves, I get them to write down their purpose. And their purpose usually is something like to be the best paper plane manufacturers in the world, the best outcome. So the not-for-profit world, they know their purpose. It's about how do I break that down to give hope at the grassroots to a beneficiary. So for me, what I've tried to do is take all this wonderful work out there by all this academic researchers, business books, all that sort of stuff, and try and distill it down into, yeah, but how? Mm. How do I implement this? How do I do this, right? And try and give models around that. I've reread the books out and I've read it and I cringe a little bit because I said, well, did that really explain things? And I'm not the best writer going around. So I think it'll start provoking more questions than we've given answers. But what I've also done is a blog site called FAQs for Org. So you read in my intro about the same questions come up. Why am I always in meetings? Why can't we make decisions? I try to answer those on FAQs for Orgs. And um, I do that. And at the same time, I'm introducing integral and all these other frameworks that are out there as well so for me what i hope 
is you know i'm giving hope to people out there who are on their own personal journey as they go through this you know i'm not going to change the ceos out there and the senior execs and even the current day boards that much but if i can help the up and coming generation then uh, i'll be happy on my death date and and my eulogy whenever that comes it's a fantastic motivation and it seems to have been a thread through a lot of your working life rob um absolutely yeah fantastic it's been a real privilege to have you here speaking with the FuturePod community thank you very much for your time Thanks, Mandy. Thanks for having me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.